Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Hello, listeners. I hate to be that person, but I want to ask for your support in something. There's an annual survey in my city called the Best of Halifax. In this survey, various businesses, people, and services are nominated to earn the title of Best in their category. I'm proud to say that Nighttime has been nominated in the category of Best Podcast, and with about 20 seconds of your time, I think I have a chance of winning it. Now let me be clear, this isn't just an ego-driven pursuit. Awards and recognition such as this give me the leverage I need to help the show grow. For example, when I contact a guest and invite them to share their story with you, it can be difficult. In fact, it often starts with me explaining what a podcast even is. Recognition that comes with an award like the Best of Halifax will make that job a bit easier and hopefully bring more stories to you. So please, before we get into the episode, hit pause and visit nighttimepodcast.com. The first thing that you'll see when you land on my site is the link to vote. And it's not difficult. My mom, who is technologically challenged, managed to vote for me in just about 45 seconds. So let's see if you can beat her record. Again, visit nighttimepodcast.com for a link to the vote. I appreciate it. Now let's get to the episode. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back, listeners. Tonight, I have something special for you. Well, at least for most of you. If you're like me, you probably enjoy exploring history, unraveling mysteries, and dipping into some dark stories. Well, podcasts like Nighttime aren't the only places that are able to deliver on these three fronts. I'm willing to bet there's a quiet, well-manicured spot not far from where you are, where you can walk among the very stories that we all pine for. The only issue, well, for some, is that you're walking just several feet above the story's now-dead participants. In a prior episode, I introduced you to Craig Ferguson, a nice but kind of creepy fellow in Halifax who runs a social media presence he calls Dead in Halifax. If you listened to that last episode with Craig, or if you follow what he does online, you probably heard his catchphrase, graveyards are where history comes to life. And tonight, he's going to again prove it. When we last met, Craig and I walked our way and talked our way through the dead who lay in Halifax's Camp Hill Cemetery. Tonight, we're going to go a bit further back in time as Craig offered to introduce us to some of those buried at the site that serviced Halifax's dead in the years before Camp Hill. The old Halifax burying ground has been sitting solemnly in the heart of downtown Halifax since 1749. Despite its modest size, over 12,000 have been buried there, many stacked one on top of the other. But each of them have their own story. And as you'll hear in this episode, some of the dead who lay in the old Halifax burying ground connect our city with some major historical world events. So let's dig into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, Craig Ferguson, the creator of Dead in Halifax, will give us a guided tour through the old Halifax burying ground. We'll get into it a little bit, but this is, we call it 
called it's a burying ground and not a graveyard but well this spot like being from halifax i've walked past here a million times and i i've never been in it but i often look in it because this like this must be the oldest or one of the oldest graveyards in the city this is the oldest burying ground in the, in the city it's uh i call it the dead center of halifax good and <laughs> it was originally the outskirts of town though when Cornwallis and the year and the English settlers showed up in 17 June of 1749 they had a problem right a guy fell overboard the ship and drowned and their problem was what are we going to do with the dead people and so they cleared out a, they marked out a plot of land on their town plan that was at the furthest south in town and this was it like we are in the southern suburbs of the original town plan of Halifax wow and for people who don't, who are listening and can't see us we are in present day the center of downtown Halifax. We're at Barrington Street in Spring Garden and it doesn't uh, get any more um, downtown than this. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Fowler who's an archaeologist uh, calls this area of town the Halifax Necropolis and we can talk about it a little bit more but a lot of people don't know that that parking lot across the road um, where uh, you park when you're going to Taz Records mm-hmm. there's a few thousand people buried under there. Oh. The old library site, which is recently um, the site of the uh, encampments for unhoused people or whatever, that's the original cemetery or for the um, poorhouse, yeah. the, the Victorian poorhouse. And thousands of people are still buried under there. Under our old library. And that's it's funny because people often say the old library is haunted. Oh, do they? Yeah, that's like a, a common... When people list like the haunted places in Halifax, it's often the old library. And I wonder if that's probably because of the history of it being, you know, with a cemetery underneath it or something. At, sure. At the time that it was built, um, the city claimed that no human remains were disturbed in the construction. But that sounds impossible. Mm. Uh, the soil is really acidic. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's like little bits and, and stuff. But I've also heard from municipal workers that um, sometimes when the frost heaves you know there's a finger bone on the ground I don't know which stories are true Mm. all all of it's hearsay yeah of course we're in the old burying ground of Halifax you say it's not a graveyard what is the distinction a graveyard is attached to a church is essentially the churchyard and a cemetery now I'm actually a little fuzzy on the difference between a cemetery and a burying ground but I see burying ground used a lot for um, decommissioned cemeteries um, and that's what this is. This hasn't been used as an active cemetery since 1844 and in the 1840s um, there was a law passed that made it so you couldn't have any more burying grounds in downtown Halifax because they're considered unhygienic people's attitudes towards death change people's attitudes to, to cemeteries change when we were in camp hill last time we talked about how that was a rural cemetery which is of course in downtown halifax now mm-hmm. but at the time it was considered a rural cemetery and there's a very the stones look very different than these yeah um and the idea of what you would do in the cemetery is very different than the, this was a functional place this was a place to solve the problem of what to do with the dead people and uh, it served that purpose for just about 100 years. Wow. Um, as far as the, for people listening that can't see what we're looking at here, comparing Camp Hill with this, this looks, a, these stones look a lot older, maybe more ornate. Most of the stones in Camp Hill are sort of an industrial product. Like mm-hmm. uh, they're made it with things closer to modern tools. There were designs that you picked out of a book. Um, And you see some of that in here too, but a lot of what you see in here is what people refer to as like mortuary art. These are the 
gravestones carved by specific carvers. We know their names. We um, we learn about their style. Like uh, some people have a very fancy way of like drawing that crossbar on the letter H, and that lets us know that it's his stone. Or or maybe the four the number four is very pointed, and that points to a particular stone. Wow. There are stones here. Uh, most are local, but there's some here from Boston as well. And I think it's sort of a time when there just weren't competent gravestone carvers here. And lots of trade was happening between Halifax and and Boston mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a lot of the people who are buried here are um, loyalists who had moved from areas like Boston after the American Revolution. Okay, You'll see it marked clearly on the stones. It'll say, formerly of Boston. Interesting. It's important to the people. Uh, what is kind of like a, a range of dates for people who would be buried here? When would they have passed? The, ol- the oldest stone in this cemetery is from uh, 1751. Wow. It's the stone of Malachi Salter, who's from the same family that uh, Salter Street's named after. Yeah. Um, and he's a child. Uh, when he died that stone wasn't the oldest for a long time it was only found um, you know relatively recently during work they sometimes the stones fall over the dirt and sod kind of grows over top of them and they're just gone for 150 200 years yeah and that's that's what happened in that case uh, and when they were doing work to a lot of work has been done by the old bearing ground to restore this site and they still periodically discover stones wow there are 1,200 gravestones in wow. the cemetery. That represents 10% of the people buried here. So there are 10,000 burials in this site. Wow. And this, and this an, is not a big site. It's not a huge location. And so, um, you know, the people are uh, probably buried, like, more than one deep. There's an area over there where there's uh, almost no gravestones, and there's a lot of speculation that that would sort of, like pit graves during like typhus epidemics Whoa. things like that which were real things that happened in halifax in the 19th century mm-hmm. we get sort of noise on all sides well no, that's wait the, good, good note to end it on so well, let's go meet some of the people here sure i got strange to be in a graveyard full of you know multi-hundred-year-old stones as there's cranes and surrounding yeah us. you get the full contrast all right so this is the 1839 gravestone of uh james bossom who's the son of james and catherine bossom and what does it say there who was willfully murdered oh my on the morning of the 8th of august 1839 by smith d clark in the 23rd year of his life. What a way to, so that his monument for, in time is basically that he was, he is the son of these people and he was murdered on purpose. Well, and willfully murdered is the legal charge at the time. Um, so they're making it very clear, like it wasn't an accident, right? They did it. And um, they're also probably pretty frustrated with the justice system because let me tell you why. So James Bossom Sr., ran a pub on Barrick Street. Barrick Street is Brunswick Street now, and uh, the descriptions of Barrick Street uh, in the ni- 19th century are pretty, like, hilarious, but also, like, violent. Like, brothels and bars and taverns and saloons, and they, they called it knock down Street, and people would be murdered left and right, mm-hmm. if you believe the descriptions at the time, which are obviously um, written very colorfully. Yeah, of course. Uh, and James Boston Sr. ran a tavern. It's called the Waterloo Tavern. And his son, 
the younger James Blossom was a real notorious bully and ran with a gang of toughs and they were like causing problems up and down Barrack Street. Smith D. Clark uh, owned a grog shop, which I take to be just kind of like a place that sells spirits and stuff um, in the same general part of town. And they had an ongoing um, series of beefs, basically. Um, and so they... <laughs> They had, uh, he had threatened a friend of Smith D. Clark's, and Smith D. Clark, like, knew that Boston was going to come looking for him. And uh, I've got some quotes from the uh, the Halifax Pearl, which is quoted in the uh, Bermuda Royal Gazette. So these are old newspapers yeah, okay. at the time. Yeah, it's I never like, heard any of them. Uh, on Wednesday night, Clark loaded a brace of pistols with ball and said that if Boston came near his door, he'd put the contents of one of them in him. He wasn't kidding. So at around uh, 6.25 in the morning... Um, Boston starts banging on the windows of Clark's grog shop and he's calling him every name in the book. Clark emerged from the shop with two pistols and he's, he's just bluffing at this point. Um, but he snapped one of the pistols, like shot it off in the air. This is according to the newspaper report again. Clark snapped one of the pistols. Boston laughed and used some sneering expression. Uh, or Clark, reiterating that he would shoot him, fired the other pistol. So the ball entered through Boston's eye, passed through and lodged against the skull on the opposite side. So shot him through the eye. And he fell to the ground, uh, not quite dead, but just like totally comatose. And Smith dropped his guns in horror. So the whole street fills with stragglers and spectators, uh, people coming out of the pubs. Everyone's getting a look. They've heard this gunshot go off. There's no way Smith D. Clark is getting away with this. Yeah. Except that in 1840 uh, was the... um, coronation of queen victoria okay. and prince albert okay and so to celebrate they pardoned criminals all across the commonwealth not every criminal but the um lieutenant governor would write a letter for special dispensation and who knows how they justified it but smith d clark was given a royal pardon instead of ha- facing the hangman's noose wow. but the boston family made sure that he was known as a murderer for all time. Well, here we are. having it engraved into their son's gravestone here in the old burying ground. And uh, some people say that Smith D. Clark, like he disappeared after all this happened. And some people say he moved to Boston. Hmm. Uh, some people say that James Clark Sr. got a hold of him and he got chopped into bits and buried in the bottom of the Waterloo Tavern on wow. Barrack Street. That is very cool. That is a crazy story. As I'm looking at it, when we first, when you first pointed it out to me that it mentions that he's willfully murdered, I didn't realize down the bottom it says who did it. Yeah, <laughs> oh my I God. there's a there there's also like um, in this cemetery like uh, one of the the losing party of a legal or a, you know what was considered uh, acceptable at least a duel by pistols <laughs> as well. So someone in Sparing Ground who died via duel by pistols. It's very rare to see. Even the cause of death on a stone, mm-hmm. those always catch my interest. Mm-hmm. In Camp Hill, we saw lots of people who were lost at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, in Halifax cemeteries, you see a lot of people from 1917, it says, killed by explosion. Mm-hmm. That was the sort of standard epitaph. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see one here that makes it so clear, the legal charge, the person who did it, totally unique as far as I know. Yeah, uh, we are going to walk down here to one of the most uh, famous um, box graves 
uh, some people call them ledger stones, this sort of horizontal thing, the shape of a shoebox. We're going to go look at the grave of Major General Robert Ross. Yeah, these look like stone caskets almost sitting on top of the ground. People think that there's people in them, but they're not. It's just, um, it just basically holds, provides structural support to the um, ledger stone, which is a big, long slab of stone or otherwise break. Yeah. I think it's from the... Uh thriller video michael jackson doesn't oh yeah one of the tops of the ledger stones are pushed off and there's a body underneath walk it. around here here you lead the just, way i just don't want you to walk over that one this is sort of um the military section of the cemetery and obviously like these were like considered important people at the time and they were there's a lot of these box stones around um and these would have been expensive, and they were kind of all the fashion in the 18-teens. Hmm. So to have these, like, more expensive, more ornate stones indicates that these were people of high status in Halifax. And this is the grave of Major General Robert Ross, who is most famous as the guy who burned down the White House. Oh, but I've, I've heard of Canada, like, taking over and destroying the White House at one point. I didn't realize it was a Halifax connection. Well, it's a funny story, right? Because when Justin Trudeau was having these tense uh, lumber tariff negotiations with Donald Trump, Donald Trump said, didn't you guys burn down the White House? <laughs> and by you guys, he meant Canada. But he really meant R- Robert Ross. Mm. Robert Ross is not, was not a Canadian. Oh. Uh, Canada didn't exist. Because it's 1814. Okay. So Canada doesn't exist properly until 1867. So Trump didn't have his history, he right? Never, Robert Ross never lived in Canada. Robert Ross never set foot in Canada, as far as I know, or set foot in Halifax, uh, or at, at least vertically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was horizontal when he got brought home. Uh, when he was killed, and he was killed in action on his way to a battle, he was pickled in rum, like 157 pints of, or liters of... Uh, of rum, and so the only preservative they had, and brought to the closest British port, which was Halifax, Nova wow. Scotia. He was given a hero's entry with the lieutenant governor and the written descriptions from the time, but he never set foot here when he was alive. Let me tell you. Let me tell you a little bit about this uh, his story. So he's originally from Northern Ireland, and he's a career military man. He rose to the ranks during the Napoleonic Wars, and then he was given charge of expeditionary force in orders to attack the United States in 1814 and this is for sure the thing he's best known for like he was known as being a guy who got his feet wet he led from the front Mm -hmm. whereas like some of the other leaders uh, were more likely to uh, operate from a battleship in the fleet you know and not set foot on land themselves Um, but he was like front and center with his guys so the, the, the Americans had these sort of like non-professional militias you know and the British troops were professional and well organized and they've been in all these battles Napoleonic Wars and through Spain and Egypt and Mm -hmm. you know colonizing the whole world Mm -hmm. they've got they've got the most professional military in the world and they are making their way down the eastern seaboard and they're on this campaign they just torch the homes of people who resist them they are um, ruthless about it but Robert Ross was sort of known as a bit of a reluctant arsonist. And so uh, he ordered his men not to burn private homes in the approach to Washington. Uh, Their principal objective with the burning of Washington was to crush the morale Hmm. of the Americans. It wasn't a strategically important city. 
in the Battle of, in the War of eighteen twelve, but uh, the idea of like what they were ultimately able to do, which mm-hmm. is burn the White House, um, send the president fleeing, and uh, also attack the Capitol. The, the the last person who attacked the Capitol before uh, January sixth of twenty twenty, yeah. and then they basically left. Honestly. Um, you know, somebody, they did, like, they did take fire from a house, and Robert Ross did order the burning of that house. So to say that, like, he didn't burn any private residences isn't totally accurate, but he was principally interested in the symbolic value of burning the president's manor and looting the Capitol. Wow. And here he is. And here he is. So that's in August of 1814. Mm-hmm. In September of 1814, uh... The British had taken an American lawyer on board of their ship, uh, Francis Scott Key, and he was negotiating for the release of one of his friends, and he was successful in that. He successfully convinced him to uh, set the prisoner free, and he was treated as like kind of an honored guest. Okay. And one of the things he did is he had dinner with Major General Robert Ross okay. and the other British uh, leaders who were on the boat. Um, five days later, on the 12th, uh, Ross is on land en route to the Battle of Baltimore and they encounter a group of Americans Ross rides forward to command his men because remember that's the kind of military leader he is and um, two, uh, snipe, one of two snipers like they're not sure who fired the fatal shot but he was shot right off his horse and killed and he died while being transported back to the fleet meanwhile back on this uh, Francis Scott Key is still on board the ship and uh, he is stuck there. He's successfully negotiated the release of his friends. He watches as the British attack Fort McHenry. They don't want to let him off because he's been at this dinner with Robert Ross and all these other people as they're planning this assault on Fort McHenry. So he has to watch all through the night as the British are using um, aerial bombs. You know, there's this huge tactical advantage, right? Um, And what does he see? Do you know what he saw in the morning? No. You don't know what he saw in the morning? No. Well, he saw the Star-Spangled Banner flying by the dawn's early light. Oh, my goodness. That's what he saw. And they mentioned that in a song somewhere. He sat on that ship and he put his feelings into a poem, which was then set to a song, which became the American National Anthem. Wow. So a much more peripheral role for Major General Robert Ross in the creation of the American National Anthem because by that time he was dead and on his way probably back to Halifax. But all this happened within a space of like two weeks. Very cool. And cool for it to all be sitting here. I, you'd never, you would walk by this graveyard a million times and you would never guess that it's connected to these other events. But I think it's a fascinating story that really reveals how like Halifax is more important as a early British port in North America than a lot of like contemporary Haligonians would ever understand. Mm -hmm. Halifax was, um, especially once after the American Revolution, like Halifax was sort of like the first port of entry um, for uh, Europeans coming across. Remember, Newfoundland's its own country, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's the first mainland sort of port of entry and sort of the last jumping off point for anyone heading, heading to Europe. So it's the crossroads of the world at an important time in history and that's why in every old cemetery in Halifax you find these kind of stories where like world history comes alive just through the writing on one gravestone we can uh, if we go back here I can tell you what it says on the gravestone you can't read it very easily because it's horizontal 
let's take a walk through now and I'll just point out some of the ones that I know we're going to about. Yeah. So, I noticed that a lot of them have that typical gothic uh, skull with wings. You, know, you see that now on like t-shirts and stuff, but I've well, seen it here a few times. So that's called a death's head. Okay. And a death's head is a memento mori. And a memento mori is a Latin phrase that means remember death. Mm-hmm. So it's a thing that reminds you of death. Remember like these gravestones were erected before people, you know, before a lot of people were literate. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that a death's head does is it tells you right away what the stone is. Like there's a person buried under here. And that's why so many of these um, gravestones begin with here lieth interred the body of. Mm. We're just looking at one here for Christian Fraser Baugh. Um, but, you know, you see as we get as we get uh, moved through into the 19th century, you see things get a little more uh, what allegorical like they're not talking about the body anymore it's like sacred to the memory of mm. um, in loving memory of okay. um, but in the 18th century these are markers of death and they remind people that they'll die right and death was like more familiar back then mm-hmm. There's a lot of graves of children in here you yeah. know um, the infant mortality numbers uh, in the days before vaccines and antibiotics were a lot higher than they are today. This is not a political show. This is not a political show. <laughs> I don't think that's a political statement. Uh, but infant mortality was a lot higher in the days before vaccines and antibiotics and before good nutrition for yeah. children. Um, and there are a lot of stones for children. So a stone with a skull and wings uh, explicitly reminds people there's a body buried here. But in this cemetery, we also know that most of the ones where you see a skull flanked with wings are also um, produced in Boston. They're produced in the Massachusetts Bay Area. The way we know that is partly through geology, like that stone that doesn't come from here. Okay. Right? Yeah. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, um, people, researchers sharing information, they're able to identify things like how the guy makes the number four. And they say, oh, that came from Homer's workshop in Boston. Um, and they they can tell, you know, with great certainty. Um, and that was, like, very typical of the kind of trade routes at the mm-hmm. time. Like, we were doing a lot of trade mm-hmm. with Boston. Um, you would have to be pretty wealthy, I think, to import a gravestone from Boston. I think some of them came up as blanks, but some of them were commissioned. Um, and uh, you can see it throughout the cemetery that they change as well. So over time, it goes from being a skull with wings to being sort of a face with wings, almost like an angel or a cherub. Yeah, I've seen a few like that. It's a creepy doll face. We call it the soul effigy. And I personally, my personal theory is that um, it reflects a a change from like uh, a collective thinking. Like, you know, here's a thing that reminds you that death is coming for all of us to uh, a thing that is about... um, the individual, you know, it's about the individual soul of the and the memory sacred to the memory of mm. the person who's buried under the ground. Uh, so we can see, let's if we walk through. You can, you can see that transition taking place. Sometimes you can see things on. You can see the transition taking place on a single stone. These are two Boston stones. They're and very they, thin. That they're very thin. Made. They're made of slate. And it's pretty durable material. 
and the one in the middle is by a person who Deborah Trask calls the Halifax Carver. And we know his stones because they have always have an elaborate outline. And these kind of soul effigies with this kind of doll's mm-hmm. face. Um, as we go on, uh, you can see some real, like, there's some real deluxe models of these Boston slates, including the, the Lawson's Children's Stone, which is a very famous uh, gravestone in the cemetery. And you can also see, like, some of these reminders of death are going to continue onto stones made by local carvers. You can see the difference in the color of the stone there, too, right? Yeah, this is Halifax Ironstone, which all the old buildings and churches and things are made of. And he's used, like, some kind of carbon, like candle black or something, to coat it, which gives it, um, makes it more resistant to the elements. Okay. Yeah. And he, that's a trick that he passed on to a later carver I recently learned from Deborah. So, man, we can't get a good look at this. Well, you might get a better look at it. This is the Lawson Children's Stone. Look at this carving. This is produced in Boston. It's on slate. And look at this carving of these angels here with the crown in the middle. And they're blowing uh, trumpets, but there's also, uh, they're also holding quills. Hmm. Right? Now, this is for the children of Joan and, of John, sorry, and Sarah Lawson. How many do we have here? One, two, three, four, five, six. Wow. Right? And none of them are older than three years old when they died. Uh, the Lord have gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, what once had virtue and grace and wit lies moldering now beneath our feet. Wow. They went on, they went on to have more children, the Lawsons, or, or maybe had children, at least had children who survived. One of them is the, um, one of the founders of uh, the Bank of Nova Scotia. Um, and, you know, so people, it's interesting. This is obviously commissioned after all these children died. Mm-hmm. And it's written like a, like a ledger, like, you know, like, like an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, You know, is. which is, is uh, remarkably sad, really, if you think about it. And really drives home, you know, within the first died in 1772, the last died within in 1784 so within 12 years they lost six children under the age of three this is your favorite this is like one of the first gravestones that really got my attention <laughs> uh, this is the 1783 I think um, yeah grave of Jean Cater who is the wife of William Cater. And this is carved by James Hay, or at least from the workshop of James Hay. And we're going to see a few of his stones all through here. But I'm going to describe it for the, uh, for the podcast. This part of the gravestone is called the tympanium. This is the top arch on top of the stone. And this one has four uh, images. There's a face with uh, M-shaped wings in the middle. It's a very sophisticated carving if you look at it. Like, it takes a lot of planning to figure out these layers. Oh, yeah. Um, And then uh, below that is an hourglass turned on its side. Your time has run out, right? This is crossbones, and that lets you know exactly what's underneath the ground here. And this is just the most remarkable carving, I think, of a skull. It's beautiful. It's so detailed. Um, but you see a lot of these, but this is the most 
beautiful one and just the most expressive uh, face. And I take a picture of the skull just about every time I come here because like I'm still just amazed by it every time. And this is like the transition between, um, uh, this is the transition between those gravestones that are like a symbol of death and gravestones that are a symbol of like, uh, the hope of eternal life, right? It has a soul effigy. It's got it all but it is beautiful. There's so much detailing in here. These kind of acanthus leaves in the border and this rope, you know, this was the, the top of the line model that you, that you would get from the workshop of James Hay. And, uh, this is my, just my favorite example, almost entirely because of that skull. Uh, this is like for a guy formerly of Great Britain. And I know, I just noticed this one the other day, late of Halifax Gardner. You know, just you get the profession and everything. You, you see a lot with the mason stones. Well, this is the most Masonic gravestone anywhere, as far as I'm concerned. This is the uh, 1821 gravestone of Abner Stowell, and it's made by um, Kinnear. You can tell he's proud of his work. Uh, oh, it's signed by the artist. It's down signed the by the artist who's who uh, built a stone over there for his wife. That's really something as well. One of the largest stones in the cemetery. I wish I could tell you. You'll have to have someone else on to decode all this Masonic uh, symbols. And I have a friend. I have a friend who's a, um, a Mason in New York, and I sent him all this stuff. And he's like, "Yep, that's a great one," but he won't tell me what any of it means. <laughs> so I wish I could tell you what all these means. But here's a here's a very obvious symbol, right? An hourglass with wings on it. Time flies. Yeah. You know, exactly. when you're having fun at the old Baron Ground. So this is the back of the stone. Oh, it's another Mason. It's another James Hay thing. It's Masonic. It's full of Scottish, like Scottish designs again. Very similar to the the designs in the last one. I think that's meant to be like a lion's face in the middle. It's a bit... Looks like it's laughing. It looks like you know uh, you're the same era as me. It looks like uh, you remember Super Mario (laughs) Two. You had to like. That, that was a bad guy who flew around in the sky, is what he looks like to me. Man, that is great. I know what you mean, the sun, the bad suns. Are yeah, it's like a similar face. Anyways, you can see, like, the the crossbones, the skull, and the hourglass pointing out of the... poking out of the ground. And it says, memento mori, right? Remember death. Hmm. So over and over again, these sort of reminders of, like, how close mortality was back then it's different now you know we live in a culture that's so much about like death denying that you uh you know gravestones have like a picture of you or a picture of your car or you know the like we're trying to hold on to things like um almost the way that like ancient egyptians did you know they want to they want to take it all with them but uh, uh back then i feel like in the 18th century people were like you just had to be more familiar with death. When somebody died, like you would have to spend time with the body. You'd be responsible for it. One of the first things Cornwallis did in terms of like issuing like laws was telling people you have to report deaths immediately and deal with the body because it's a hygiene issue, hmm. right? So people had like you could. There wasn't a funeral industry where you could get someone to like take them away and paint them up and prop them up and make them look lifelike. Like you had to deal with and dress the body and take care of them and everybody lived with that wow you know and also looking at the ages we're older than most of the people we've looked at in here for sure 
for sure. I mean, uh, lots of people, I mean, there's lots of people made it into old age as well. But, uh, you know, the they say that the average age number is always driven down by the infant mortality mm. numbers. Oh, yeah, well, we saw that one, um, six children over three years there's, old. There's so many like that in here. There's so many like that in here. So the oldest uh, stone in the cemetery is the 1751 gravestone of... Malachi Salter and Malachi Salter was a child when he died and he was um, he's a member of that same family uh, that Salter Street's named after and his father uh, who's also named Malachi Salter um, was sort of a landlord and a business person and he had kind of an interesting life of his own when he died he was like um, he had charges of treason against him uh, because he was trading with the Americans at the time of the American Revolution. Um, and so, interesting guy, um, probably a really disreputable business person based on all the things that I've read about him and the things that people had to say about him. And on top of that, there's um, documentation in the form of a letter he wrote to his wife that Malachi Salter was a guy who owned slaves. And that's something that people forget about, about early Halifax is that um, lots of the early settlers of Halifax enslaved people, and that's a history that we shouldn't um, we shouldn't forget or gloss over. And he made it really clear he would, he was writing a letter to his wife who was visiting Boston, and he said maybe you could pick up a new slave for us because this one here, like I got to beat him every day. He's so bad, and so here's a guy who used violence and uh, to punish the people who. Um, he enslaved in his household, and there's a street named after him in downtown Halifax. You know, it could the Salter family um, went on to do like a lot of different things. So I don't know if that street is named specifically after the elder Malachi Salter, but it's worth looking into as we kind of reevaluate this history. Likewise, the previously uh, oldest stone in the cemetery is from uh, December 16, 1754. It's for John Connor, who was. Um, the first operator of a ferry like he sorry he operated the ferry between Halifax and Dartmouth things were very messy uh, especially in the relationship between the Mi'kmaq and the English settlers the Mi'kmaq had said do basically do whatever you want in this area but don't go to Chibuktuk right like that's where we are it's the only place we have left and the English um, realizing that the numbers were way down because there had been like um local epidemic sort of spread through and kill kill lots of people decided to settle in Halifax anyways and that started a series of uh, conflicts between the Mi'kmaq and the settlers and John Connor's wife and child were killed during the raid on Dartmouth um, he would take vengeance during another raid where he um, he was caught um, trying to steal supplies from a Mi'kmaq camp and then he returned to Halifax with the scalps of Mi'kmaq people he had scalped. It wasn't under that scalp uh, bounty that Cornwallis had put in place or whatever, but that's a well-documented story. And, um, you know, he's buried right here in uh, downtown Halifax. One of the values of, like, preserving places like this is it gives us a chance to talk about that history. We would, You would never know. I wouldn't have learned it. We wouldn't have had this opportunity to have this discussion 
if uh, if he wasn't still buried here, if there wasn't some preservation of this historic artifact. I don't think this gravestone is doing anything to celebrate him. Like, we could have, like, a long conversation about Confederate general statues in the United States or even the statues of um, Sir Johnny MacDonald. This isn't celebrating a person. It says they lived and died and their family paid to put it up. And it's a historical artifact in its own right now. And it is... Uh, in the appropriate place and it's a great time and creates an opportunity to have a discussion about those kind of things. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I want to take a moment and tell you about something I just posted to the nighttime premium feed. But for those of you unfamiliar, let me start by saying that there is in fact a separate and much better feed than the one you're listening to now. It's available exclusively at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. This premium feed costs about as much as a bag of chips, but I promise you it's more satisfying than a salty crunch will ever be. First, the premium feed funds the creation of the show, so if you enjoy nighttime, you have the premium feed subscribers to thank. Secondly, the premium feed is far less annoying. Since it's listener-funded, you're not going to hear ads like this or any of the others that interrupted this episode. And lastly, the premium feed includes exclusive episodes that you won't find here on the free feed. Shortly after the release of this episode, I'll be releasing one simply titled UFO Night. That episode will feature a conversation between UFO investigator Chris Rutkowski and I in which we discuss some recent news in the world of ufology and review some recent Canadian UFO reports. So if you're interested in it and other exclusive content, you're going to want the Nighttime Premium Feed. You can get it at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And before we go, I should also mention that all annual subscribers of the premium feed will receive a free nighttime welcome pack that includes stickers, pins, buttons, and whatever else I have laying around. Again, go premium at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nighttime podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. I know you like a story of crime and gore. Absolutely, yeah. I want to leave you with um, one of the most infamous and sensational uh, murder trials that ever took place in Halifax. Sounds good. And the people aren't buried here. Okay. um, Two of the people are buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in the South End, but two of the people are buried across the street here, right across Spring Garden Road in the um, old poorhouse burying ground, which is under the former Memorial Library and the lawn out front Although local lore says they're buried under about where the sidewalk is on Spring Garden Road. Okay, yeah. so where the, underneath where they cook the hot dogs. Yeah, usually. think about that when you get your bud the spud. Because <laughs> you could be um, standing on top of the grave of honest-to-goodness pirates. Uh-huh. Uh, do you know the story of the Saladin? No. So, the story of the Saladin begins in Peru. Okay. Of all places. <laughs> and in Peru... Uh, in the late 18th century they discovered these islands that were like bird sanctuaries like birds had no predators there and they went there to nest and stuff and consequently the islands are covered in guano which is which is bird shit and uh, to give you an idea how thick the deposits were I, I made this comparison which is if you're standing on the waterfront 
and look up at Citadel Hill. That's how deep the deposits of guano were on this island. And this was, by the estimation of European chemists at the time, the finest fertilizer available in the world. It would, like, supercharge your crops. So a whole industry grew up importing guano from Peru. You'd have to, like, fill your boat full. Sometimes you'd wait up to nine months (laughs) to fill your boat with guano. And then sail around the bottom of South America and then up through the Atlantic. And the Saladin was one of these boats. It was sailing from Peru to Liverpool, England, but it never got there. And the reason it never got there is that it took on uh, two passengers. And uh, the George Fielding was one of them. And he had his 12-year-old son, George Jr., with them. Okay. And George uh, Fielding was a captain himself. But they didn't know, like the people running Saladin didn't know he had a dark reputation. He was notoriously abusive to his crew. He starved them until they jumped ship when they arrived in the left port. Um, he had, in fact, been imprisoned in Peru for trying to make off with an illegal shipment of guano. <laughs> and if the people had known, they never would have, um, they never would have, allowed him on right allowed him on the Saladin and it's shortly after Fielding gets on board he finds that this boat doesn't just have guano it's got silver bars and silver coins and copper a lot of copper as well <clears throat> and the value of all those precious metals would be in the millions of dollars today right so it's not like a ship filled with treasure this is probably this is just like normal like taxes or something you know things being moved from place to place but it's still it's still millions of dollars so he started like a whisper campaign and he was trying to undermine the captain whose name was Mackenzie and he spoke to like one crewman at a time and he said listen i've been talking to the other guys and they're ready to mutiny and in fact, they're going to murder everyone who doesn't sign on to mutiny. So you should probably like get on board with this. Yeah. But of course, this is all fielding, initiating this. So he finally finds the weak link. And the weak link is a guy named George Jones, who is the ship's uh, sailmaker. And he was working as a steward because the steward and the cook were like seasick. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was like physically small. He, had, uh, he was missing one leg, which is good if you want to become a pirate, although I don't think that was his life's ambitions. Things just worked out that way. And uh, so Jones tried to warn the captain, and the captain said something to the effect of, like, I don't want to hear anything from you stinking Irishman, and, uh, and dismissed Jones. And so Jones goes back to fielding and says, all right, I'm in. <laughs> so they make a plan, and they get uh, another couple of people on board, they hatch their plan and it's like one night as they're crossing the equator and it's like midnight. The sun goes down on April 13th. Fielding puts his plan in action. All the mutineers worked on the night watch with the first mate Thomas Byerly, Byerly in charge. Fielding made an excuse to stay on deck saying he had an argument with Captain McKenzie and was too upset to sleep. <laughs> so around midnight Byerly said he wasn't feeling well and he laid down and that's when Fielding and the co-conspirators sprung into action. And this, these are quotes because you can get like a full transcript of this trial. The mate was lying on the hen coop when Bill Johnson struck him with an axe. Uh, he hollowed out, he hollowed out, like he yelled out once, and they shoved him overboard on the starboard side. So this is their whole MO. You hit him with an axe, you throw him overboard. Then, then two of the guys were sent below deck to kill the captain, but they chickened out because the captain had a dog, and they thought the dog might wake him up, or they thought the dog might bite him, so they came up uh, without killing him. And so they decided to kill the ship's carpenter next. They called him up on deck, and they were lying on either side of the hatch, and when he emerged, they hit him over the head with an axe. Then Anderson and Hazleton, two of the mutineers, dragged him out of the hatch and threw him overboard, but he wasn't dead yet, so he started screaming at the top of his lungs, murder, 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 right? 
And so to cover up the drowning man's cries, they start yelling, oh, Lord, there's a man overboard. <laughs> and it gets the captain's attention, right? So the captain rushes, rushes to the deck, and Anderson attacks him with an axe. And they wrestle until uh, Jones and Anderson restrain the captain so that Fielding, the, the head mutineer, uh, could whack him in the back of the head with an axe. Right, and according to the trial, Mackenzie exclaimed, "Oh, Captain Fielding! Oh, Captain Fielding! Don't!" <laughs> then Fielding said, "Oh, damn you! I'll give it to you." Fielding hauled him forward in front of the companion and struck him again, and then threw him overboard. So this goes on and on and on. They kill. They're just like call people up on the deck. They hit him over the head. They throw him over the side. Uh, so in the span of less than an hour, they had murdered six men in cold blood. Some confessions say that Fielding's son was on deck for the whole thing. 12-year-old son's there the whole time and even said he'd wish he'd gotten in a swipe oh. at Captain McKenzie. So the deed was done and Fielding said, I'm the captain and the Saladin was his. The two guys are still below deck. The steward and the cook, right? They're both sick. And so uh, by the time they came up, everyone's like tired of killing people, right? <laughs> and so Fielding's like, no, we got to kill those guys. And the other guys are like, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And, uh, in fact, like, these, uh, the steward and the cook were, at least one of them said, like, if you guys had just told me, like, I would have, we would have done it too, <laughs> right? Um, so, the, you know, they take, like, a vow on a Bible, which is uh, called a piratical oath, okay. where they swear to be loyal to one another and that they're all in this together, right? Mm-hmm. And, obviously, Fielding's in charge. He's a captain. He's, like... Um, you know, he's the one who had the idea in the first place. So everyone knows he's in charge. He orders all the weapons on the ship. Next morning, he orders all the weapons on the ships gathered up and thrown overboard. So that nobody, there can be no more of this murder business. And basically, everybody gets drunk from there on in. Uh, they split up the people's clothes. They split up the money, right? And uh, there's some disagreements about what to do with the copper. Because they think, the copper's not worth that much. If we ditch it, we can move faster. But Fielding's like, look, I know some people in like around the St. Lawrence Seaway and if we can get up to St. Lawrence Seaway I'm going to offload this copper we're going to make even more money off that at some point somebody's in Fielding's cabin and they discover a couple pistols Uh and depending on what version of the story you believe maybe some um, poison and they're like what is going on here and they realize pretty fast this guy's real plan is to kill us all get everything and get everything mm-hmm. right so they tie him and his son up and they make the two guys who hadn't killed anybody yet kill them basically threw them overboard then they proceed to try to follow fielding's plan with no fielding right fielding and his george jr and george senior are both dead well things go wrong around country harbor nova scotia <laughs> Which is uh, near down near Yarmouth, and where they crash into the rocks. Oh God! They crash into the rocks, and uh, the hull is open. The guano is all washing out all over the place, and they are helped by the locals, right? The local officials or whatever are board the ship to get the people off, and they start to notice some like weird stuff. Like, they transport them off the ship, but they notice that, like, hey, all the money on board's been divided up, even though that makes it harder to transport. And, like, hey, they painted over the name of the ship, 
And uh, they said that, like, the other people died of, you know, disease or there was a disease outbreak or whatever. But um, nobody mentioned a kid. And there's a lot of really small clothes because mm-hmm. uh, George Fielding Jr. was, like, very small. Like, he was 12, but he was the size of a nine-year-old. Okay. Uh, so, like, this is children's clothes on the boat. Like, basically, like, something smells fishy. They lock them up and put them in jail. And the steward and the cook, I think, are the first to confess. Because they're just like, we never wanted to kill anybody. We never would have done this. We didn't find ourselves in the middle of it. So you have these six people accused, right? Well, they do decide to um, eventually let the cook and the steward go. Like, they believe that story. Like, we never would have done it. Even though, you know, one of them at least probably threw a 12-year-old boy into the ocean. Not a good look. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can imagine this is going to be a sensational trial at the time. And they convict the four guys of murder. Um, but they do not convict them of uh, piracy. Do you know why they decided to drop the piracy charges? No. Do you know what the punishment for piracy is? I would think like a hanging? No, that's the punishment for murder. Okay. The punishment for piracy is worse. Oh, really? Well, okay. depending how you look at okay, it. Okay, what is the it? The punishment for piracy is worse depending how you look at it. Because oh, is this where they put them in the cage? They put your body, they hang you until you're dead, and then they put your body in a cage, and they hang it at the mouth of the harbor, uh, and let you, like they tar it, and let you putrefy oh. in the cage until you're nothing but a skeleton, and then the skeleton falls apart and the birds pick at you, and that lets other people know, this is what we do to pirates. Right? But it's this isn't the golden age of piracy. This is like the 1840s. Yeah. Uh, so nobody wants to do that, mm-hmm. I think. Like, yeah, like, come on. Right? Like, That's not good for anybody. Nobody wants to do that. So they, um, they have, um, they have a hanging, a big public hanging, the biggest public hanging, the last hanging of multiple people. They have it about where the parking lot for the Victoria General is now okay. on what was called the South Common. Okay. And they built a special big scaffold for it and the guys made speeches and everybody watched and they hanged them to their dead but they had dropped the piracy charges so that the people of Halifax wouldn't have to endure mm. having this um, uh, ghastly sight every time you came into the harbor by boat. Uh, they buried two of them in the Catholic cemetery, which is conveniently right across the street from where they hanged them. Mm-hmm. And they had a full ceremony and Holy Cross was a brand new cemetery and those graves are unmarked. Wow. Uh, but it was a brand new cemetery. Again, when these cemeteries downtown closed, but they kept using the, um, poor house burying ground for years after the other ones closed. And so the two of them that were, uh, Protestant were buried, uh, right there at the corner of, uh, spring garden road in Grafton. And you're right. You could probably, uh, Stand, like, sit on top of their bones today and eat a hot dog from a food truck without even knowing it. <laughs> um, I want to end with this. Is when we last talked to you, you were discussing your idea of, of possibly putting some of your research and interests into a book. Yeah, I've just finished writing a book that will come out this Christmas with Formac Publishing, and it's called Dead in Halifax. And, and it's... Uh, there's stories like the ones we've talked about today. All the ones we talked about today are in the book. Um, and you know, there's stories from the old bearing ground, the little Dutch church graveyard in the North end, mm-hmm. which a lot of people pass by every day without yeah, even knowing I it's do there. Them. Um, there's stories from, uh, Fort Massey cemetery in the South end, uh, its neighbor, Holy Cross and Camp Hill, which we visited the last time we got together. 
Do you know if they're doing like pre-orders or anything yet? I don't know if they're doing pre-orders or anything. Okay. We're still in the editing stages, okay. so I'll I'm put, just hoping it comes together. Yeah, once it does come out, I'll put links up for people who listen to the episodes can get it. Well, that's awesome. I appreciate it. This you've brought the dead to life again in this in this cemetery or or burying ground, I should say. Well, you know, like even the even when the microphone was off, I was talking to strangers. I love digging. Uh, the microphone wasn't off. I got that. I'll include it for sure. I I, <laughs> I love uh, digging up these stories and uh, and retelling them, keeping them alive. Yeah, you're like a cross between like a creep and a tour guide in this graveyard. <laughs> I'll take it. I want to thank you for joining Craig and I for our walk among the dead at the old Halifax burying ground. Perhaps our talk inspired you to get to know the people buried in your town. If you do, let me know how it goes. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode of Nighttime, but before we part, I have some thanks. First, a big thank you to Craig for sharing his afternoon with me. Next, a big shout out to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thanks to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, the show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. And with that said, let me thank the newest supporters of the premium feed, as without them, this show would have been dead a long time ago. A big thank you goes out to Tom, Suzanne, Jerry, and Doug. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, but can't support it via the premium feed, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes across social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas or if you want to get feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com contact or on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. We don't know because we're from Belgium. Oh, yeah. It's Canadian people known in the world or, or what? No, no, no. No. Like, no, no, no. Like, I thought maybe you'd be interested in the artwork on it, not the... Oh, no, no, no. Not, no, not really. No, that's okay. It, it's, it, it, it interests me to see it, but... but yes, I understand. Yeah. A guy buried over there burnt down the White House a couple hundred years ago. That's oh, uh, world history. That's, that's oh. what we were just talking about, yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is the tallest one next, in front of the tree. It's oh. a British general who uh, burned down the White House in 1814. Oh, okay. And uh, and then if you if you see this tree here, that's like a V. Yes. If you look on the right of it, it says on the stone the person was murdered, and it says who killed them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. That's a that's a good one. <laughs> there's a lot of um, stones, like American style stones that were imported from Boston that have like skulls oh. and things on them oh. and also yeah uh, but we do the tour you know we, we, oh you we did the walk around no no not yet but we will do it to, this area this sort of section here I find is like the best